Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, an excursus on natural theology, part 22. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last week, I was at Ohio State University for a Veritas Forum, which turned out to be unexpectedly significant. Um, I had a debate scheduled with an atheist philosophy professor at OSU named Kevin Sharp, and the subject was, is there evidence for God? And I thought, like most of these Veritas Forum events, that this would be a sort of a friendly dialogue uh, where we would each speak for 15 minutes and then we would have a moderated conversation. Well, uh, I have not experienced such ferocity in a critic since I had those dialogues with Lawrence Krauss in Australia. And uh, Kevin Sharp uh, had prepared very, very well for this dialogue. Um, he made a point of letting me know before the event began that he had listened to all eight years of our Reasonable Faith podcasts, all of them. And he was familiar with the debate with Sean Carroll, with Alex Rosenberg, as well as other material. And he had PowerPoints and charts to show, uh, went a mile a minute, and uh, attacked not only the six arguments that I presented in my opening statement, but all the other arguments I've ever presented uh, anywhere. So it was uh, really a very good contest. Many people have asked me, what would it be like if you were to have a debate with someone who really took the time to prepare? Well, this is your chance to find out, because this is going to be on YouTube as soon as it's edited. And I think that it will be a great tool for dissecting and talking about, hitting the pause button, replaying, thinking about it. It was a very substantive discussion. And I'll say something more about the content of it later on in the class today, because I want that to be part of the podcast, um, because we can benefit from Sharp's critique of all of my arguments. Today we're going to wrap up our discussion of the moral argument for God's existence. The last time we looked at a defense of premise two that objective moral values and duties exist and responded to some objections to that premise. In particular, the objection from evolutionary psychology which says that because our moral beliefs are the product of evolution, and evolution or natural selection is aimed at survival value, not at truth, we can have no confidence in the truth of our moral beliefs, and therefore could not be justified in believing premise two. Now, I responded to this in a threefold way. First, I pointed out that, in fact, there is no plausible, coherent sociobiological account of our moral beliefs. Uh, this defeater really does not exist, and we shouldn't let people bluff us by asserting that it does. Secondly, I pointed out that the objection assumes that atheism is true, and therefore begs the question. Yes, if God does not exist, then our beliefs are shaped by a mechanism that does not aim at truth, but mere survival. Um, in fact, that is the first premise of the argument that if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. 
But the atheist cannot be justified in simply assuming that therefore God does not exist. If God does, not, if God does exist, then he might well guide the evolutionary process so that we would arrive at moral beliefs that are for the most part true, as well as have survivability. So the objection that because our moral beliefs have evolved, they are aimed at survival, not at truth, presupposes the truth of atheism, and that begs the question. Finally, number three, I argued that the objection is ultimately self-defeating. All of our beliefs on naturalism are the product of evolution, and therefore are selected for by their survival value, not for their truth. And that would include the belief in naturalism itself. So that the objection is self-defeating. It contains within itself uh, a, its own defeater. You cannot be rational in affirming naturalism, because if naturalism is correct, all of your beliefs are unreliable, um, including your belief in naturalism. And this is, of course, as Cody pointed out, Alvin Planning is famous evolutionary argument against naturalism. So I do not think that the uh, objection to the second premise from sociobiology or evolutionary psychology is a good one. Now we finished our class last time by talking about an objection or a concern that Michel raised uh, based upon the subjectivity of our moral experience. Uh, since our moral experience by definition is subjective, doesn't that mean that moral values and duties are subjective? And I suggested that that doesn't follow. Um, my experience of the physical world around me is subjective. Um, feeling certain things, seeing certain things, hearing or smelling certain things, those are all subjective experiences. But that doesn't mean that the external world of objects, which I experience, is therefore subjective. The object of experience can be objective and real and mind independent, even if the experience itself is something that is by definition subjective. Now I want to share with you a letter that I received uh, the day after um, our Defenders class. And I want to emphasize this letter does not come from a beginner a novice. This comes from the man who is responsible for transcribing all of our Defenders podcasts. He's been doing this for years. He has transcribed all of Defenders 2, and each week he does another lesson in Defenders 3. So this is a person who has a good grasp of apologetics material. But listen to what he writes. Bill, just wanted to give some feedback on Defenders and suggest you add something to your moral argument premise to presentation when you talk about this in the future to clear up a confusing matter. Now, realize I've read and listened to your material on this countless times over the years, yet I've been misunderstanding this for a long time now, and in a similar way Michelle seemed to be. I have to believe this is something a lot of people are confused about. It was the confusion equating the words experience and subjective, specifically equating moral experience to subjective morality. 
But the light bulb finally went on for me when I heard you explain this in the following way. I've not heard you put it quite like this before. Maybe I just missed it. You said, quote, obviously my experience is subjective. That is what experience is. But the object of the experience isn't therefore subjective, end quote. You only needed to say those three sentences. Now I finally get it. What I think I needed to be explicitly explained when going over premise two is this distinction between the moral experience itself and the object of that experience. It is implied in your analogy with the five senses and the physical realm. But for dolts like me, you have to spell it out. Seeing a chair with my eyes is just as much a subjective experience as sensing that murder is wrong. But that does not mean the object of those experiences are subjective. Murder is objectively wrong, just as the chair is objectively real, even though I had a subjective experience of both. It all makes sense now. Knowing this also helped with the flat earth analogy Michelle brought up. I finally realized that this wasn't a question about subjective versus objective at all, but rather was merely dealing with incorrect versus correct belief regarding an objective truth. Just as flat earthers had an incorrect belief regarding the objective truth of a round earth, so too the slave traders of the 18th century held an incorrect belief regarding the objective truth that slavery is wrong. P.S. Tell Michelle thank you for me. I hope she doesn't feel she was asking a question no one else cared about because it was the one I was waiting for and the answer was definitely helpful, to me anyway. It solves a nagging problem for me because I never fully got it until now. So thank you, Michelle, for raising this in class. It just goes to show that when you've got a, a question, it's probably something that somebody else is bothered by as well. And so don't be afraid to speak up. So is there any um, final discussion about premise to uh, its defense and response to objections to it? OK, we've got Taiwan. Um, Dr. Craig, it is interesting that Chinese character for soul is devil says, and um, two character devil says, and that gives us a understanding that the fall of man when they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, our soul has realigned from God says to devil says, and it's all about alignment issue. Uh, our subjectivity and the objective truth uh, is a alignment issue. Yes. Very nice. That's nicely said. Our subjective beliefs can be misaligned, can't they? Or they can be correctly aligned with the objective truth about these matters, which is supplied by God himself, his nature and his commands. That that are uh, that express that nature. Okay, uh, let's go down to David here. It was interesting that that was brought up because I was wanting to ask a question concerning uh, humanity's history. 
Now, mm. we know that humanity separated in different cultures and things like that. And today, when we find tribes, you know, in other countries, we find that certain acts that they do are horrific or, or very uh, just horrific. So, for example, tribes that practice cannibalism yes. and, and things like that. And I wanted, I was wanting to ask that question. If we separated so much, and but we believe that objective moral values exist, then I'm guessing, I, I believe you answered my question, we have a subjective experience of those moral values. So therefore, different cultures are, were unaligned correctly with those Right. That's right. And it's no part of the moral argument to say that our moral faculties are infallible, any more than our sense faculties are infallible. You see water on the highway ahead on a hot day, and it turns out to be a mirage. Um, the stick in the jar of water looks bent, but you know it's not. There are optical illusions and auditory illusions. So it's no part of the moral argument to say that our moral perceptions are infallible. And this is especially true when you think of the sinfulness and the fallenness of man. Mm -hmm. It's no wonder that people would um, be involved in perverse practices given their alienation from God and their estrangement from him. Nevertheless, I'm told by anthropologists that the commonality of the moral codes among the peoples of the world is really quite striking. They may differ in ways in which these fundamental values come to expression culturally, but at root there, there is a large dimension of commonality. Take cannibalism, for example. From what I've been told, tribes in New Guinea, for example, that practice cannibalism agree with the Christian ethic that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore, they would never cannibalize a member of their own tribe. But they just didn't regard people in other tribes as neighbors. These were foreigners or strangers, and so they could be subject to cannibalism. They were enemies. But there was the underlying value of loving your neighbor as yourself. Similarly, a value like modesty is probably universal, but in some cultures a woman's going bare-breasted is not immodest. In others, just showing her bare arms is considered to be immodest, or showing her earlobes is immodest. So there can be different cultural expressions of underlying commonalities, I think. Uh, and another thing is that concerning the... Um now, we have that many cultures or many places share commonalities in their morals. Now, what about the punishment when they go against those morals? For example, in some countries, if someone murders, yeah. then it's to put them to death. But in countries like here, you might be put to death or you could be in prison for 50 years or things like that. Right. Um, in other countries, in some Muslim countries, you know, to, for being immodest, you get harsh punishments. Right. But yet here, which is more liberal, you we don't get any punishment at all. Yeah, that, that's obviously uh, a reflection of people's different conceptions of what constitutes justice yeah, okay. and what would be an appropriate punishment right. for the crime. I would say, however, and here's a caution, is that especially in Western society, many people have given up the idea of retributive justice altogether, that when a criminal is punished, it's not to pay him back for his crime. It's either to reform his character so that he gets better, or it's to sequester him in jail so that he can't hurt anybody else. Mm -hmm. But the purpose of the punishment is not retributive. And that would obviously 
affect what sort of punishment would be doled out for yes. different sorts of criminals. Drew. Yeah, something I've learned um, reading Thomas Aquinas in the Scholastics, experience doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not like you just have experience in Plister. Experience is always experience of something. It is essentially intentional. It, it's outward directed. So when you're ex having a moral experience, what are you experiencing? You're pointing outside already. So it seems like yeah. the very claim of moral experience, and it seems to imply some sort of, what is, was it your, if you don't believe in the objective moral values, what is it you're experiencing? Yeah, what are you experiencing? Notice the word that Drew used, intentionality. That's a technical term that's worth adding to your vocabulary if you uh, don't know it already. And this is the ofness or aboutness of something. Thoughts have intentionality. I can think of my wife, or I can think about my summer vacation. And Drew's point is that experience, subjective experience, exhibits intentionality as well. It's an experience of something else, and so there is an object of that experience. Okay, anybody else? Yes, James. Bill, I had a question, and I know you you kind of touched on this in your, your newsletter, um, but it, it has to do with the, um, I guess, defending a premise, and, and you were saying that, uh, and you were going into how, how uh, you know, there's, there's as, as long as you can show that there's a greater probability that is correct rather than incorrect, then, then you can use that as a way to, to prove that it's true. And I'm just wondering maybe if you could expound on that, because, because I, and I, I guess I know you're the person you debated must have brought that up or whatever, but I'm, I, I was kind of wondering about that myself. Can you expound yes, on that? Yes, I will uh, when I finish this argument. Then oh, okay. I'm going to reflect on, okay. on the objections raised by Professor Sharp. But let's be sure that we've um, finished with any discussion of this premise. Cindy? I just want to touch on the, the idea that evolution caused moral fiber within <clears throat> the human and it seems to me if really <clears throat> we're saying survival of the fittest is the origin of our moral standard, and uh, I, it doesn't seem to, at all to add up. For example, in certain species of fish, they eat their young mm -hmm. as a means of survival. And, and in fact, that helps the population of the fish. But I can't think of any example in humans, uh, in cu human culture, where they would eat their young as a normal course of a day's events. And it, it just seems there's so many examples where if you're looking at only survival of the fittest, so many behaviors would be the norm that are not the norm. Yeah. And it just speaks again to something beyond just that objective of survival. Yeah, I think you're right to challenge this. Uh, in the article that I quoted from by Jeffrey Schloss, he particularly looks at evolutionary explanations of altruism, where someone does some self-sacrificial act for a person or organism that is not its own progeny, and therefore it has no evolutionary interest whatsoever in it. A and yet, altruism has evolved uh, uh, among human beings. So uh, how do you explain that in purely evolutionary terms? Jeff says there is no explanation in the literature that effectively 
explains the value of altruism. And I do think in most cultures, if a mother dies, it is common for another woman to assume the responsibilities of the mother mm. and not just let the infant... And that would be altruistic behavior right. because she has no genetic investment in that other woman's child. In fact, it would be quite a burden, as we all know. Right, exactly. It, it actually poses a, or places a, a burden on her. That's true. Okay, any other comments on this second premise? Okay, well, let's then draw our conclusion. From the two premises of the argument, it follows that God exists. The moral argument complements the contingency and cosmological and design arguments by telling us about the moral nature of the creator and designer of the universe. It gives us a personal, necessarily existent being who is not only perfectly good, but whose nature is the standard of goodness and whose commands constitute our moral duties. So it really rounds out the case for theism in a way that the other arguments uh, do not. I have to say that in my experience, the moral argument is probably the most effective argument for the existence of God. And I say this somewhat grudgingly because my favorite is the cosmological argument. But the fact is that cosmological and teleological arguments don't really grab people where they live. Uh, you can dismiss or ignore the cosmological evidence for the beginning of the universe or the fine-tuning uh, of the universe. But the moral argument, on the other hand, is not so easily brushed aside. Every day you get up, you answer by how you treat other people, whether you think there are objective moral values and duties. It's an unavoidable question. So in answer to the question that we began with several weeks ago, can we be good without God, I think the answer is no. We cannot truly be good without God, but if we can in some measure be good, then it follows logically that God exists. Any final comment on the moral argument? <clears throat> Steve? I'd like to try to point out that it seems like the moral argument that our obligation is God's character and nature. Therefore, for him to be just, he has to expect us to be to make a way for us, because you wouldn't hold somebody accountable to being something they're not, and that's what he is doing yeah. in a fallen nature. Therefore, to, for him to still maintain the moral obligation means he's provided a way to, to us to partake of his nature and be transformed. Yeah. I think this does have intimate connections with the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the atonement. Um, where you have the demands of God's justice need to be met, but then also his love, which would bring reconciliation. Now, in our, in our closing minutes, let me say uh, something about the critique that Professor Sharp offered at Ohio State University of my arguments for God's existence. It was a very odd critique, because for the most part, he didn't attack any of the premises in the arguments. Instead, what he argued is that all of the arguments, all 10 or so of them, suffer from what he called weakness. That is to say, they don't 
inspire sufficient confidence for belief in God. So it wasn't that they have false premises or are illogical. It's just that they're weak. They don't give you sufficient um, confidence for belief in God. Now, why did he think that? Well, it had to do with the criteria that I give for what constitutes a good deductive argument. Now, does anybody remember what I said uh, the criteria are for a deductive argument to be a good one? Okay, over here. You had described how you, you weren't looking for it to be absolutely 100% you know, guaranteed by all to say this is absolutely true, but just that it was more plausible than okay. implausible. Okay. And the premises had to follow. Okay, very good. Excellent. So a good deductive argument needs to be logically valid. That is to say, uh, from the premises, uh, one to the conclusion, three follows by the rules of logic. Secondly, the premises need to be more plausible than not. The premises need to be more plausible than the negation of those premises. And if those conditions are met, then I said you have a good argument. Now, Sharp attacked this by saying, well, suppose that the premises are more plausible than not, so they give you a 51% confidence in the truth of the premises. He says, that's not enough to engender confidence to believe in God. If you have only 51% confidence that God exists, that's not enough to believe in God. So the arguments are all too weak in his view, even if they are successful. Now, what's wrong with that response? Well, a couple of things. When I said that for an argument to be a good one, it had to be logically valid and its premises need to be more plausible than not, I was setting a minimum for what an argument needs to be to be a good one. I wasn't in any way suggesting that the arguments that I offer have premises that are merely 51% probable. What I'm saying is that they're at least that. I would say that these premises, in many cases, are extremely probable. So this just sets a lower threshold for goodness of an argument. But it is premises that are only 51% probable. Think of the premise that uh, if the universe began to exist, the universe has a transcendent cause. I think that's 100% probable. That has a probability of one, I would say. So I, I just, I, I, I couldn't imagine why he thought that I was doing anything more than setting a minimum floor for what constitutes a good argument. Moreover, and here's the second point, in a deductive argument, in a deductive argument, the probability of the premises taken together is not equal to the probability of the conclusion. Rather, the conclusion will be at least as probable as the premises. It will be equal than or greater, equal to or greater than the probability of the premises. 
So even if the premises are only 51% probable, that doesn't mean the conclusion is only 51% probable. It means the conclusion is at least 51% probable. And I would say in, in the arguments I gave, it's considerably more than that. Any comment or question about that response? Um, Drew. I know with arguing over the internet, I just find that people who are really dogmatically committed to a position can find some way to harmonize, you know, some way of absolutely forcing the facts to fit their worldview. I mean, you can, of course, resort to some hardcore mm -hmm. ad hoc harmonization, but that doesn't rescue your argument. It doesn't mean it's like, oh, therefore you're right, or that, you know, right. I haven't proven correctly. I, it's like people just don't get that. It's like, you I can force harmonization. I think that's quite right, Drew, but what was odd to me is that he didn't dispute, really, the cogency of the arguments. On his view, it seems to me, I had demonstrated that it's at least 51% probable that God exists. So here's an atheist who thinks that it's probable that God exists. Uh, and the title of the debate was, is there evidence for God? Well, the answer would be yes. Um, and he would admit it. So it was, it was very, really odd. Yeah, Bruce over here. Now, just two things. Uh, you could probably add to the, to the good argument is explanatory value, which would enhance the, the probabilities. But I think that would be relevant, Bruce, to an inductive argument. But no. here uh, I'm talking about a good deductive argument. And, and I think this is all you need for an argument, a, a deductive argument to be good. If you've got these two things, then you should uh, accept the conclusion. Okay. But the second thing would be then he's at less than 50% for believing you should be an atheist. Yeah, that's right. Atheism so the is improbable yeah. on his view. Then it's, it's improbable. Atheism is probably an false. Yes. I just think it's interesting that, didn't you say he's a philosophy professor? Yes. I mean, the simple things that you pointed out as far as a deductive argument are pretty much the standard. And that's, that's with, with people being in, in philosophy at all, whether Christian or, or otherwise. And I think that's why so many um, non-Christian philosophers have actually had given, given respect for your arguments and, and the way they have to attack your premises. Right. Because if your premises are true, then it follows. Yeah, these so are he not just, he just basically says philosophy criteria. isn't okay. Right. These are, as you say, the standard sorts of criteria. So basically he's attacking his own field. I mean, by, by, by the I way think, it looks like I to me. I think that he misunderstood me. Uh, now, I, I can't prove that, but I, I think that he did not understand I was setting a minimum floor for the argument to be good. He thought I was claiming that my arguments have premises that are merely more plausible than not. But obviously, an a premise can be more plausible than not by being 70%, 80%, All of those meet the standard. Cash? Uh, I know there's some statisticians-type people in here um, that could speak to this better. But for me, you're not basing your belief in God on just one of these arguments. Oh, good. I'm glad and you so, this up. Yeah, if one is 51%, let's just say it was only 51%, and then you add to it another one that's 51%, now you're at maybe 75%, a third one you're at 85 I mean, by the time we get to 10 arguments, we're at 9.9999999. Okay, do you hear what Cash is saying? I didn't think of this in the dialogue, so I didn't say it. But afterwards, this is exactly right, and it occurred to me. Timothy McGrew, who's a professor of philosophy at University of Western Michigan, emphasizes that even deductive arguments that say make God's existence 20% probable, 
That's all, just 20%. If you accumulate these arguments, 20%, 15, 30, 35%, pretty soon, as Cash says, the cumulative probability of these independent arguments is way over 50%. And this is the way a cumulative case is built in a court of law, isn't it? No single piece of evidence might be enough to convict beyond reasonable doubt. But when you put all of the cumulative evidence together, then it can be beyond reasonable doubt that the accused is guilty. And so the very fact that I've got around 10 arguments, um, each of which increases the probability of God's existence, would I think make it very plausible to think that this does give you great confidence that God exists. All right, we're out of time, but next time we will wrap up our discussion of natural theology by looking at the famous ontological argument for God's existence. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.